Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a hot summer's night in Washington, D.C., 1988. A black Cadillac cruised past the brick row houses of the near northeast side. The tinted windows rolled down to reveal two men in black tracksuits, both around 30 years old. To an observer, they looked like two average neighborhood men going for a late-night drive. But they had more sinister plans in mind. The men were Antonio Jones and Jerry Millington, and they were enforcers for Rafael Edmund III, the youngest and most powerful drug lord Washington, D.C. had ever seen. Millington spotted their target, sitting on the stoop, smoking a cigarette alone. Jones slowed the car to a roll. Millington popped his clip and his gun as quietly as possible. Before the man could even look up from his cigarette, Millington fired two shots into his chest, and Jones sped off into the night. They agreed there was no need to tell Rafael Edmund about their mission. Their target hadn't been a real threat, just a small-time dealer who stepped on Rafael's turf. The 24-year-old kingpin didn't need to worry about it. But Jones and Millington were older and wiser. They knew that even the smallest threat needed to be taken care of quickly and quietly. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. Today, we'll continue our exploration of the life of Rafael Edmund III, the youngest drug lord in D.C. history, who controlled 60% of the crack and cocaine that came into Washington by the time he was 24 years old. At his peak in the mid-80s, he was making $300 million annually, but it came at the cost of thousands of lives. The crack Rafael introduced ravaged the community earning D.C. its title as the murder capital of the U.S. Last week, we discussed Rafel's childhood and upbringing, from his introduction to drug dealing at the tender age of nine to the beginnings of his multi-million dollar crack empire. Today, we'll examine Rafel's downfall, including his arrest and infamous trial. We'll also delve into the lasting impact that Rafel's actions had on the D.C. community. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's dive into the life and downfall of Kingpin Rafael Edmund III. Rafael Edmund III was living the good life in 1988. Money was on his mind as he and his crew walked into their favorite designer boutique, Linnea Pitti. At just 24 years old, Rafael was grossing around $20 million a month. 
He passed a fair share of it on to his loyal crew, the nearly 200 employees who waited at his beck and call. There was his partner, Tony Lewis, a good man with a sharp eye for the trade. He had his enforcers, Antonio Jones and Jerry Millington, who were willing to protect him with their lives. There were his lieutenants, who were paid handsomely at $10,000 a week, and his runners and lookouts, who pulled $2,000 weekly. His dealers could sell his product so fast, he gave out $1,000 bonuses like it was petty cash. And it was petty cash for a multimillionaire like Rafel. He and his family were happy, healthy, and comfortable. His siblings and his mom, Bootsy, helped him cut and distribute his product, and he made sure they were all living it up alongside him. When the tailor asked Rafel what fabric he wanted for his suit, he took a sip of champagne and asked for the most expensive material they had without even looking at the price. After he was finished with his measurements, Rafel let the next member of his crew take a turn. Everyone was getting custom-made suits today. It was the little things like this that kept his people loyal. The shopkeepers knew Rafel's money was dirty, but they didn't care. The crew would pop in and buy up thousands of dollars in merchandise, and in exchange for their loyal patronage, the store would turn a blind eye. The bell on the door jingled. Rafel looked up and saw Alter Ray Zanville, one of his closest confidants, making her way inside. He told the tailor to give her anything she wanted. Rafel had been in love with Alta Ray ever since he saw her pawning jewelry at a diner two years earlier. The rest of his crew didn't understand young Rafel's fascination with the 47-year-old white woman, but he didn't mind. Alta Ray understood him in a way no one else could. For the past couple years, Rafel had been supplying her with cocaine to deal in DC's affluent white neighborhoods. She was a natural hustler, and by now, she was making her own fortune. But Rafel still liked to treat her. Today, her shopping spree would be picked up on his tab. Rafel left the shop with a few of his men and headed over to the Georgetown campus. The basketball team was practicing, and he didn't want to miss it. Rafel had always harbored dreams of going to college and playing basketball, but it wasn't in the cards. There was no time for college when the lucrative drug business was calling his name. He still played ball to unwind, and he'd even started a small city league with a few of his friends. Basketball was his therapy. It took his mind off the troubles of running a multi-million dollar drug empire. Today, Rafel was just content with watching. He attended every home game during the season and had courtside seats for every match. The Georgetown Hoyas were just practicing today, but Rafel didn't mind. He spotted his childhood friend, John Turner, who was in the starting lineup. Another friend, Alonzo Mourning, ran onto the court. He smirked at Rafel and came over for a handshake. Mourning and Turner weren't a part of Rafel's crew, but they ran with them sometimes, spending Rafel's money like they were the ones making it. As practice came to an end, the coach, John Thompson, called Rafel over. He wanted to speak to him in his office, alone. Everyone in town knew Rafel was a drug lord. He never hid his money, he openly flaunted it. In this neighborhood, you got that kind of cash doing one thing and one thing only. Rafel had become something of a folk legend in the DC community, both loved and hated, respected and feared. 
Coach Thompson was in the latter camp. He started off nicely, asking Rafel to steer clear of his team. He told Rafel that Morning and Turner had a real shot at the NBA. Associating with Rafel could land them in hot water. Rafel just laughed. They were his friends. He wasn't going to abandon them, and they wouldn't abandon him. The coach stood up. He told Rafel to stay away from his players and warned him that he wasn't going to have this conversation again. Rafel was shocked. No one had ever confronted him like this before. He knew he was a criminal, but he wasn't a bad influence. From his perspective, he was doing more good than harm for the community. Rafel thought he'd keep hanging around with Turner and Mourning as if he'd never even met the coach. But when he reached out, his old friends were ignoring his calls. Coach Thompson had threatened both players with being kicked off the team if they were caught spending time with Rafel. To them, college and basketball stardom were more appealing than the life of a drug dealer. Rafel brushed it off. He told his friends that he understood. Their dreams came first. But deep down, he was terrified. If his oldest friends had turned on him, who else could? In retrospect, Rafel decided the separation was a good thing. He was 24 years old. He didn't need his childhood friends. Now he had more time to focus on his business. It had been six years since Rafel started dealing drugs full time. He already ran the biggest drug network in DC, but he couldn't let himself stagnate. Over the next few months, he stopped spending so much time at the club with his crew and rededicated himself to his enterprise. The operation was already running pretty smoothly. Rafel had a cocaine hookup direct from Columbia. The product came into LA, Rafel flew out to negotiate, and then to keep his hands clean, his crew handled the payment and shipping back the supply. The cocaine bricks would make their way to DC by U-Haul truck. When they arrived, stashes were placed in safe houses around the city. The cutting and bagging was done entirely by Rafel's family the only ones he fully trusted. The baggies were given to the lieutenants who passed them out to dealers. They stationed themselves throughout the alleys of Orleans Place in the near Northeast neighborhood, hidden from the cops, but easy enough for clients to find. Rafel didn't want to change his winning formula, but lately there were issues, not with his product or his dealers, but with cops and competing crews. Everything was starting to slip out of control. The root of the problem was crack. With crack came crime. Desperate users in need of a fix resorted to stealing. Dealers and users alike used violence to get what they wanted, whether it was money, drugs, or more turf. The body count was staggering, both from overdoses and murders, and urban black communities were bearing most of the burden. From 1985 to 1989, deaths associated with cocaine and crack overdoses increased 31%. By 1994, the homicide rate for black males aged 14 to 24 had more than doubled from the previous decade. Adults weren't the only ones affected. The number of black children in foster care doubled, and fetal death rates of black babies rose more than 25%. The D.C. police, and increasingly the D.C. community, blamed their city's crack problem squarely on Rafel Edmond. Rafel chose to ignore the health effects of his product. 
and he was completely oblivious to his crew's role in the rising homicide rate. His enforcers, Antonio Jones and Jerry Millington, shielded him from what they considered small problems. Rafel was the kingpin, and Jones and Millington didn't want to bother the king with issues they could solve themselves. He had enough on his mind already. A dealer stealing supply? They'd get rid of him. A crew member who became addicted? They'd sober him up for good. A user threatening to rat out their dealer? They handled it. And while they'd been told to stick to beatings, they found murder was much more reliable. Rafel had no idea what his enforcers were up to. He only saw the results, a swift, disciplined business where no one dared step out of line. So when rival dealers started to step in on his territory, he trusted Jones and Millington to sort out a solution. Drug dealing used to be a kingpin's game. Each dealer had his own turf, and everyone agreed to respect boundaries. For the past few years, Rafel controlled the entire area around Orleans Place and Trinidad, 12 city blocks in total. But now that crack was catching on, small dealers threw all caution to the wind. Anyone with a bit of cocaine and a kitchen could make and sell crack. It was literally easier than baking a cake. And in order to stretch their supply and make more money, some dealers would cut their cocaine with fillers like laundry detergent, caffeine, or laxatives. This resulted in more overdoses and poisonings, which only attracted more attention from the police. Under pressure to do something about the crack problem, they were pulling down any dealer they could get their hands on. They forced them to point the finger at someone higher up on the food chain or face a longer jail sentence. A few years ago, Rafel had been a local hero. Nearly every man in the neighborhood idolized him and every family appreciated his generosity. But he'd started flashing his wealth a little too much. Where he'd once been loved, he was now envied. Any disgruntled dealer, user, or rival was liable to snitch. With the kingpin out of the way, crack and cocaine would be anyone's game. Rafel's enforcers, Jones and Millington, felt they had no option but to silence their enemies before they became a problem. They thought they knew what was best, but they were actually making things worse. Any murder in neighborhoods known for drug activity caught the attention of the police, and they wouldn't stop sniffing around until they got answers. The walls were closing in on Rafel, and he didn't even know it. Up next, we'll take a look at the events leading up to Rafel's downfall and arrest. Now back to the story. In 1988, all hell had broken loose in Washington, D.C. Gangs were at each other's throats over turf disputes. Dealers were turning on their own crews. Addicts were resorting to violence to get their next fix. Police cars patrol the streets night and day. Anywhere from 800 to 900 people were arrested on a regular weekend in D.C. The police force paid officers more than $2 million in overtime in just one year. With chaos reigning in the streets, Rafael Edmund III, D.C.'s biggest drug lord, made sure that even the smallest threat to his empire was met with a response. Even the tiniest slip-up could cause the entire operation to topple. Unfortunately, Rafael was totally unaware of what was going on in his own crew. His enforcers, Antonio Jones and Jerry Millington, handled every problem, 
usually without his awareness or permission. It's been claimed that Rafel's enforcers killed 30 people in just one year. As more and more murders occurred, the police started tying them back to Rafel. It was always his enforcers committing the crimes, but the D.C. police were fully aware who was in charge of the 200-person crew. By 1988, the DCPD was the least of Rafel's problems. He was also top priority for the FBI, as they held him accountable for the crack epidemic that was ravaging D.C. If that wasn't enough, a new gang was moving in on Rafel's turf. Calling themselves the Trinidad Gang, they were based just a few streets away from Rafel's operation, and in the summer of 88, they started moving in on the Kingpin space. It started with harmless threats. Both sides warned the other to leave their turf. Rafel had no intention of going anywhere. He'd been on these blocks for years. This kind of blatant disrespect called for immediate action. Unfortunately, the Trinidad gang shot first. In June of 1988, a few members of the Trinidad gang shot two of Rafel's crew members on a street near Orleans Place, Rafel's rightful territory. This demanded retaliation. If Rafel let the murder of two of his members slide, his crew would be torn apart and taken over by the end of the summer. He sent his enforcers over to the Trinidad's turf, but when they arrived, the neighborhood was deserted. That was because the Trinidad gang was already making another move. This time, one of Rafel's young lookouts was shot in the leg. Rafel had never seen this sort of violence before, mostly because his enforcers had shielded him from it. He still fully believed his drug empire was a force for good, giving charity to the community and jobs to the underprivileged. He didn't want anyone to be killed. But the Trinidad gang had made the first move, and Rafel couldn't back down now. Late on the night of June 22, 1988, Rafel and an enforcer, Columbus Daniels, headed to a nightclub on 1st Street, southeast. There they found Brandon Terrell, an 18-year-old member of the Trinidad gang. Rafel told Terrell that he'd better not catch him around any of his areas or he was going to get done. Terrell told Rafel to leave him alone. He disrespected the kingpin in front of hundreds of people. They argued for a while more. Then at about 2.30 a.m., Terrell left. Rafel and his enforcer, Daniels, followed him outside. Once outside, Rafel nodded at Daniels. They both knew what needed to be done. Daniels followed Terrell down the road, pulled out a gun, and shot him. Terrell fell to the ground and cried out, Why are you doing this to me? I thought you were my friend. Daniels shot him four more times in the back. Rafel rewarded Daniels' work with a Mercedes 300 CE, but the celebration was short-lived. Rafel's head enforcers, Jones and Millington, knew that the Trinidad gang would want to retaliate. They sent their crew to buy a whole cache of weapons, from assault rifles to submachine guns, to get ready for the showdown. The streets remained deserted for a few weeks. Everyone knew a storm was coming, so they stayed away. Most of the neighborhood folks retreated to Maryland for safe measure. But while the Trinidad gang lay in wait, the fight was heating up between Rafel and the cops. His enforcer, Daniels, had killed Terrell in front of a hundred witnesses. No one would talk about what had happened. 
out of fear of Rafel's gang, but police wanted answers, and they weren't giving up. The cops started by approaching Rafel. They wanted him to give Daniels up. He politely declined. Instead, Rafel coerced one of his 16-year-old associates into confessing to the murder. He was a minor, so he would only spend a while in juvenile detention. Rafel promised his family would be well-supported while he served his time. Unfortunately, the kid wasn't well-prepared, and his story crumbled under questioning. The police sent him home. They knew Daniels was behind it, and they would get to him one way or another. Someone did finally get to Daniels. One afternoon in July 1988, he was at the barbershop with Rafel. Two masked gunmen came in and shot Daniels three times. He would be paralyzed for life. A month later, the police arrested Daniels in his hospital room. Several witnesses from the nightclub shooting had finally come forward. They knew Daniels had shot Brandon Terrell, and they knew Rafel had ordered him to do it. Rafel was in trouble. The police were closing in. His crew was being murdered and arrested. He turned to violence himself. And worst of all, common citizens were afraid of getting caught in the crossfire. Rafel saw the people in his neighborhood living in fear. He'd wanted to help them, not hurt them. He knew he had to do something to win back their trust. Rafel reached out to the Trinidad gang to organize a ceasefire. They could both go about their business on their own turfs and no further blood would be shed. The police would be off their backs, at least temporarily. The Trinidad gang agreed and all was settled. That is, until two months later, in October 1988. Jones and Millington figured out which Trinidad members had shot Rafel's other enforcer, Daniels, a few months earlier. As usual, they decided to take care of them without asking for Rafel's permission. The two Trinidad members were sitting in their parked car when two men in black hoodies approached, Jones and Millington. Before the Trinidad men knew what was happening, they pulled out their guns and shot them to death. That was the end of the ceasefire. The Trinidad gang was out for blood once again. At the same time, things were heating up on the other side of the country, in Los Angeles. Earlier in the spring of 1988, four men were arrested in Los Angeles after working a cocaine deal with an undercover cop. They were questioned about the top dogs of the drug trade, and they all mentioned the same name, Rafel Edmund. None of these men were personally involved with Rafel's crew, but they knew he was shipping cocaine from L.A. to D.C. The FBI added this evidence to their growing file on Rafel Edmund. Around the same time, in Missouri, a van was pulled over for speeding. The officer found it strange that the driver was from California, but the van was registered in St. Louis. After searching the vehicle, the officer uncovered 1,102 pounds of cocaine. It was the second largest cocaine seizure in U.S. history. The cocaine was professionally wrapped and stamped with a scorpion, the symbol of the Cali cartel from Colombia. The FBI followed the trail of evidence from Colombia to California to L.A. suppliers Melvin Butler and Brian Bennett, then all the way across the country to its final destination, D.C.'s biggest kingpin, Rafael Edmund. We'll explore the close-in on Rafael's operation up next. Now, back to the story. In 1988, 
Over 1,100 pounds of cocaine were seized in St. Louis, Missouri. The drugs were en route from Columbia's Cali Cartel to DC's crack kingpin, Rafael Edmond. The key players of the Cali Cartel went in hiding, and Rafael's cocaine pipeline dried up. He'd have to resort to other, less reliable sources. He sent associates in and out of Los Angeles with suitcases full of money, looking for any new cocaine sources they could find. This caught the attention of the police, who stopped several runners at the airport for suspicious activity. The runners who made it through ran into their own problems. Sometimes their money was stolen or kilos of product were lost. The demand for crack was higher than ever, but without a regular supplier, Rafel couldn't appease his customers. If he didn't work something out, other gangs and dealers would step in as the neighborhood's top drug source. But his operation was already crumbling. Soon, the police gathered enough evidence to issue search warrants for several of Rafel's stash houses. In just three of the residences, they found over 300 grams of cocaine, thousands of dollars in cash, and three firearms. Every major player in Rafel's crew knew they were being watched. His inner circle became paranoid, thinking their phones had been tapped. Dealers were careful who they sold to, afraid any customer could be an informant or an undercover cop. The cops were closing in. The supply was drying up. Rival gangs were growing, but Rafel didn't stop. In April 1988, he sent his trusted associate Royal Brooks to Los Angeles with $3 million to find 200 kilos of cocaine. Brooks met up with Rafel's longtime supplier, Melvin Butler, who was still in hiding with his Cali cartel contacts and two other local dealers. They struggled to find any supply, and they were getting desperate. When a supplier finally agreed, one dealer let his guard down and jumped at the opportunity. That supplier was an undercover cop. The dealer took him to the house where Rafel's cash was stashed. They negotiated the deal, $2 million up front, then another million when the product was delivered. That was when the dealer, Melvin Butler, and Royal Brooks were arrested. Another $1 million was seized from the stash house, bringing the total loss to $4 million and two of Rafel's closest associates. One of the dealers flipped on Rafel, informing the FBI about the eight trips he'd made back and forth from Los Angeles to D.C. on Rafel's behalf. Everyone knew an indictment was coming, as news spread, people began coming forward left and right, from users to dealers to former associates, confessing their involvement in Rafel's organization. They hoped they could save their own skin by turning against the kingpin. One by one, the pieces of the investigation were falling into place. But if the police wanted a chance at conviction, they needed to get closer to Rafel's inner circle. Enter Alta Ray Zanville. Alta Ray was Rafel's 47-year-old girlfriend and one of his most successful cocaine dealers. While the entire operation was crumbling at their feet, Ray was spending her money like there was no tomorrow. In the fall of 1988, she bought herself a Porsche, a Mercedes, a new house, and a full wardrobe of designer clothes. The police got to her in December 1988 when they found 1.5 kilos of cocaine in the backseat of her Porsche. When the FBI and DEA agents questioned her, she flipped immediately. 
In exchange for luring in Rafle, they offered her full immunity and agreed not to seize any of her property. Rafle got word that Altaray had flipped, but he didn't believe it. He trusted her. He gave her a call, she denied being an informant, and he never questioned her again. For the next few months, Alta Ray wore a wire every time she met with Rafel. She was slowly collecting enough evidence for the FBI to finally nail him for good. The linchpin was a conversation she recorded with Rafel's mother, Bootsy. She knew her son was in trouble. All his old friends were turning on him. The only person Bootsy could still trust was Alta Ray. Alta Ray gently steered the conversation toward Rafel's rise in the drug scene. This, Bootsy was always proud of. After all, drug dealing was the family business. She reminisced about her son's career and happily bragged about his success as DC's biggest kingpin. While Alta Ray comforted her, she was capturing everything on her hidden microphone. With the details of Rafel's crimes secured from his own mother's mouth, the federal agents had everything they needed. Rafel Edmund III was arrested on April 15, 1989, at the age of 24. He'd known it was coming. Most of his associates had already flipped on him to avoid jail time. The police had already raided most of his safe houses. What he wasn't anticipating was that 16 of his closest friends and family would be arrested with him including his mother Bootsy and several of his siblings. While awaiting trial, half the crew was sent to Fort Meade in Maryland, while the other half, including Rafel, went to the Marine base in Quantico, Virginia. The police were afraid he had too much influence with local guards at the county jail. The media covered Rafel's case constantly. While some of the news was sensationalized, dubbing him the $300 million man, other outlets painted him as a villain linking him to Colombian drug cartels and nearly 30 homicides. As always, Rafel was either loved or hated, respected or feared. Rafel and the other defendants were charged with 44 counts of various narcotics-related activities, weapon offenses, and murder. The first of three trials began on September 11, 1989. Juror selection had been difficult as potential jurors were terrified of being recognized and killed for helping convict the infamous drug lord. Several witnesses had already been threatened, and one prospective witness was shot before the trial even began. The judge eventually ordered that the jury be kept anonymous, the first anonymous jury in DC history. The defendants would sit behind bulletproof glass so they couldn't intimidate jurors or witnesses. When the trial began, Rafel was flown in by helicopter each day from the Quantico Marine Base to the courthouse in D.C. There were snipers on the courthouse roof and U.S. Marshals guarding every exit. There would be no escape attempt. Rafel wasn't allowed to be represented by his longtime attorney, Art Reynolds, as he was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. The police discovered that the attorney's car had been a gift from Rafel. During the entire duration of the 56-day trial, Rafel never testified. However, several of those close to him did, including his childhood friend Royal Brooks and his closest confidant, Alta Ray Zanville. After working so hard to keep his crew loyal, they all turned on him to save their own skin. 
the prosecution called Rafel no hero, saying instead that he was simply a thug with a wasted past and a hopeless future. On December 6, 1989, the jury finished their deliberations. Rafel was dressed in a green turtleneck sweater and black dress shoes for his last day as a free man. He closed his eyes as the jury read out the verdict, guilty. Rafel received two mandatory life sentences. His partner, Tony Lewis, and his enforcers, Antonio Jones and Jerry Millington, all received life sentences. Rafel's mother, Bootsy, was sentenced to 14 years. After the trials concluded, Rafel was sent to the United States Penitentiary, Marion, a maximum security facility in Illinois. Within the year, he was transferred to a penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, where he was given back the privileges of walking the yard and using the phone. With constant access to phones and visitors, he was able to keep his business alive. Though Rafel's operation had scattered, with some in prison and others in hiding, he still had some D.C. contacts to connect with. Prison wouldn't strip him of his power or his reputation. He made friends with some Colombian drug lords behind bars, and with their direct supply, he was moving 400 kilograms per month, double what he had done on the outside. By 1992, the FBI caught on. They listened in on Rafel's phone calls, intercepted his deals, and by 1994, finally had enough evidence to bring Rafel in. They gave him a choice. Additional time could be added to his two life sentences, or he could become an informant. Rafel chose the latter. As he'd learned at his own trial, loyalty counts for nothing in the drug world. He helped the FBI indict 16 of his own associates and two other dealers who'd been helping him in prison. In exchange, he was able to negotiate early release for his mother, who, at 56 years old, was able to walk free. For his own safety, Rafel was put in the witness protection program. His current location remains unknown. Many of Rafel's friends and family suggested that turning informant was the worst thing Rafel had ever done. He had betrayed his people by siding with the police. But to some in his community, he's still a folk hero, the kid in the flashy clothes who rose above the poverty he was born into. Perhaps the most important piece of Rafel's legacy is his role in introducing crack to D.C. His real crimes were against the hundreds of thousands of people who have overdosed on crack since 1986, the dozens of young people who were murdered by his enforcers, and the countless innocent people who were caught in the crossfire. Their blood is on his hands. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Margot Perkins and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>